Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 250 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. Another week and a change in the weather, warmer conditions and a chance for our bees to break cluster, get out and forage and with a little luck begin to build their brood nest area. Hold tight though, it might still be too soon to inspect. Stay tuned for my reasons why. Beekeeping Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. Hi everyone, and welcome to my podcast, episode 250. It almost feels like I should include something of a fanfare or a drum roll. Five years and 250 podcasts is, for me, something of an achievement. I really didn't expect it would be going for so long, and I'm hopeful that this year I'll have something new and interesting to share with you. So do subscribe if you haven't already, and you'll get the very latest podcasts each week as they're released. Head over to my Patreon page where you can sign up for all my podcasts and every single video too. It almost feels traditional to start with a weather forecast, and this week, exciting news. It's starting to warm up. Right now, we're hitting the not-so-shabby heights of 12 or 13 degrees Celsius, and with the forecast predicting temperatures as high as 15 degrees Celsius in the coming week. We also have a little bit of rain in the forecast, which will be very welcome here in the east of England, as we continue to suffer from very low water stores in reservoirs and groundwater stores generally. It could well be that it's going to be another drought year here in the east. Having made that prediction though, no doubt it will be the wettest summer on record. Please don't blame me if it is, we'll just have to cope as best we can. I do like the feel of spring just around the corner, the anticipation of a new beekeeping season about to kick off, the panic of course once again of not being prepared with all of the equipment we will undoubtedly need, but with the ever-optimistic view that whatever the weather gods throw at us, it's going to be a really good year for our beekeeping and our honeybees. Now, here's a bold statement for you. Do not inspect your bees yet. Just for effect, and to make sure you all got it the first time round, I'll repeat myself. Do not inspect your bees yet. Now, those of you who know me or have followed my podcasts and videos for a while will know I'm not a right or wrong way kind of beekeeper. I don't very often make such distinct statements because, as the experienced beekeepers amongst you will know, there are so many situations and so many variables in beekeeping. It's not ever a simple yes or no black and white kind of decision most of the time. So here's my disclaimer. Unless you know there's something afoot, something of an issue within your hive that you really need to attend to, something that shouldn't be left. Well, unless you have a really good reason to look into your hive, just don't do it. I know I'm repeating myself, and I've said it many times before, but it has to be said, don't inspect too early in the year, or you run the risk of stalling the growth of that colony and setting it back potentially several weeks, and those will be several important weeks. Again, for the more experienced beekeepers out there, you'll know that a quick look inside your hive will be okay and you'll not do any real damage. 
What I'm really trying to avoid is inexperienced beekeepers carrying out full-blown, frame-by-frame, 60-minute inspections. And despite my best efforts, I'm sure some of you will just be too excited, intrigued, or terrified at what's going on inside the hive to stop yourselves from going in and taking a look. All of that said, I do think we may be able to consider getting into some colonies, perhaps sometime around the last week of March maybe, but that will only be for a very quick check on the very smallest colonies that have required some support over the late weeks of winter and into early spring. These are the most vulnerable and as such require the most attention. The challenge here is that these colonies are also the ones that will be most adversely affected by the beekeeper opening the hive and chilling them inadvertently. Our largest colonies will simply take a look at us, wonder what's going on and carry on pretty much as normal, being easily able to maintain the brood box temperatures that they require and not suffer massive fluctuations and get chilled. Smaller colonies, on the other hand, will struggle with even the slightest cooling of the brood box, but we do need to take a quick look at them. This doesn't mean I'm going to remove frames, inspect for the queen or eggs, shuffle frames around, or any of those kind of harsh manipulations. So it's actually not really an inspection as you might call it. Just a brief look to assess how they're doing and whether they can manage a small additional amount of brood. Again, I wouldn't add any additional brood until it really begins to warm up late April and into May then you can really help out and build them back up to full strength. Again, I'm aiming those comments at beekeepers who only have a small number of colonies. For anyone with large numbers, you might consider uniting them and cutting your losses. The one thing I would say in defence of those smaller colonies is this. Do you want to keep the queen to use in a split perhaps in just a few weeks' time? If the reasons for that very small colony are not down to the queen being poorly mated or damaged in some way, then it might be prudent to hold on to them. Check all of your other colonies first and see if you can either use the queen elsewhere or pop her into a split when the time arrives. Let's face it, replacing queens can be expensive and time-consuming. Buying them in isn't going to be cheap this year, and if your colony has any downtime with a queen not laying, you'll end up with a brood break and the potential for a smaller population in the hive and potential loss of honey crop through the spring. All of that said, I'm sure a lot of beekeepers have already taken a quick look under the roof and seen ever-growing numbers of worker bees. Looking down through our clear cover boards in the honeypour hives, I've seen more and more workers spreading across the frames in our strongest colonies, and with the last few remaining commercial hives that we have, those workers are beginning to fill the space of the porter bee escapes and actually come through into that gap between the crime board and the roof. We're fast approaching decision time for these colonies, despite my warnings against inspections. One of the decisions you might have to make is whether to test for Nosema or not. We've just started checking a small number of our colonies. It's a useful skill to develop, doesn't take very long at all, and can give you a good feeling for what perhaps is influencing the colony inside the brood box. 
heavy infections of Nosema will slow your colony as it begins to try to build up into spring and may require some fairly hefty intervention on the beekeeper's part by swapping out frames or even a complete comb change with something like a shook swarm. Nosema, remember, is a spore-forming microsporidia and these spores are passed out in the bee's faecal matter, spreading around the hive because the bees are possibly too weak to get out on toilet flights, and it's likely you'll have millions of spores being trampled around the brood frames and ingested by other healthy workers trying to clean up, and so the cycle and decline of the colony continues. As long as an infected colony can hold on until the warmer April weather, and potentially into May, it's then possible for us beekeepers to do something about it. With a heavily infected colony, I would carry out a shook swarm in May. Lighter infections can be controlled by swapping out old comb for clean frames with fresh foundation, but do wait until there's a decent nectar flow and the bees are actively producing wax to make comb. Thinking about the development of our colonies as they head into spring, don't forget it's reproduction time. And in order for this to happen successfully, our colonies need drones. It wouldn't surprise me if there were some colonies with drone cells in already. We have had colonies go through the entire winter with drones happily tucked in with the workers. It doesn't happen often, although we don't open our colonies through the winter to inspect generally. So who knows what is actually going on inside? Generally, though, it's the norm for colonies to not have drones in through the winter, but just never say never. Those first few drone cells will soon multiply, and after 24 days from egg laying, these lads will emerge and begin the process of growing up into sexually mature adult drones. So here we have an indication of when we might begin to see colonies preparing for reproduction, swarming to you and I. Remember, once these drones emerge, after 24 days, there's still another 10 days or so before they reach maturity. So don't panic. It's here that we can also begin to build a picture of what's happening with the colony, specifically with regard to swarming. But of course, you might want your bees to start the process of swarming. Some beekeepers will be wanting to replace their ageing queens. Others will have their heart set on increasing the number of colonies they have. And the swarming timeline is perfect for beekeepers looking to use swarm cells and splits to build up colony numbers. All of that might seem a long way off, yet in just a few weeks' time we'll be heading towards the end of April and into May, and that's when it might really kick off. I'm currently keeping a very close eye on the oilseed rape crops in my local area. It's a fantastic crop for spring growth, and along with all the other hedgerow plants that appear, it provides a fantastic flush of nectar and pollen that a growing, swarming colony needs. Here, it's all about the timing. What I'm planning to do this spring is add a second brood box and get the bees to move up and spread their brood nest area between the two. The hope is that this will give the colony space to continue building their population without restriction, and in late spring, I can start the process of splitting these double brood colonies, ready to accept spring-mated queens in preparation for the summer borage pollination and nectar flow. If we can get it right, we should have some very full boxes of bees, split into two, one queenless, but with emerging brood when we put the new queens in, 
and queen-right colonies that will take a brief hit on colony strength, but with a queen that continues to lay eggs uninterrupted and builds back up to full strength in preparation for the borage and beyond. Remember, this year I'm hopeful we'll be heading to a heathermore for the very first time, so I need strong colonies for that too. Borage can be quite a damaging crop for our bees. The spiny stems and leaves have a tendency to shred the wings of our workers, making it harder for them to forage. Hopefully, we'll get the balance right, and we're not taking all of our bees to the borage, so we will have some back at base foraging on friendlier summer plants. Hopefully, these colonies will also build up well for the heather. Finally today, I've been doing a little bit of construction work at the unit in Norwich, I say construction work. I have to say, from the very start, this version has failed. But it wasn't a total failure, and we actually did get it to function as I'd hoped to begin with. But I found a few niggles that now need to be rectified. Let me explain. Frames and foundation. As with everything in beekeeping, there's nothing standard about them. Different hives have different size frames. Each of the hive and frame manufacturers seem to make their hives and frames slightly different to their competitors. And so we end up with a right old mix of odds and ends. No more so than the vast number of Langstroth frames that I currently have. And they all seem to be slightly different. Some are self-spacing, others are straight-sided, others are slightly thicker, some thinner. All in all, it's a bit of a pain as we really want them to fit into the boxes nice and neatly and with the same spacing. So this is a challenge for another day because, as you're all aware, the season's about to kick off and I'm way behind. Not a job that I can tackle head-on right now. What I can do, though, is streamline the way I get the wax into those frames. Here again, we have a wide range of wax sizes. They come as wired or unwired in worker-sized embossing or drone size, and of course, different suppliers use slightly different sizes to fit their own frames. I suppose that seems reasonable enough, but only if you're using their frames, of course. In the past, I've always used wired foundation. The wires give support to the wax foundation when it's first placed into the hive, because the mass of bees that hang from it in order to draw out the comb is really quite weighty. But wired foundation is an expensive commodity, so if you can put the wire into the frames and use unwired foundation, it can help with the overheads. And this is where I've been building something. Recently, I've been using a transformer with a couple of probes attached to the electrical wires to touch the frame wires, complete the circuit, that heats up the wire in the frame to the point that it melts the wax and when the connection is broken, the wire and the frames cools and the wax solidifies around that wire, thus embedding it. It's fairly simple, really. The trouble is the time it takes to pick up the probes, touch them to the wire frames, put them down again and repeat on the next frame and so on. What I have now is a plywood board with the electrical connections fitted to a wooden batten at the back of the board. And all I have to do is push the frame against the connections, complete the circuit and, hey presto, embedded wires in wax. But it turns out the connectors that I'm using are too narrow to touch the wires sometimes because, once again, the wires are not always fitted in the same place on each frame. Some are a little higher, some a little lower. It does work, though. So the next iteration of my wax embedding board is going to have copper water pipes 
as the point of contact, I'm going to fit the electrical wires to those copper pipes. And with any luck, those will be wide enough for the connection to be spot on each time and thus save me time. I've got around a thousand frames to embed wax into, so do wish me luck. Well, that's it for this week. I'll catch up with you all again in a week's time. Don't forget to check out my website, www.norfolk-honey.co.uk and for my latest videos and podcasts with more updates, tips and techniques, there's the same Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey. And remember, I'm Stuart Spinks and that was beekeeping short and sweet. Mm-hmm.